I'm going to move this thing out of the way so that I can see you because you're pretty. So before we launch into talking about um, chapter 3, verse 11, where we are today, uh, we need to kind of get a recap of where we've been, right? That's an important thing to do. Um, So what have we talked about? Jesus is the light of the world, right? And we're told to walk in the light as he is in the light. Um, That's kind of our last section. Um, You can think of it as um, this today is starting a a new portion of our study in the book of 1 John, uh, where we were talking about living a righteous life. Now we're talking about what that righteous life looks like as far as our interactions with others. And uh, Jared's pointed this out before, and I want to kind of recap for you. There's basically this three... Um, themes of cycles, or this, this test, three of them, and it cycles through in the book of John over and over and over again. And also the book of John in and of itself is kind of this cycle in a macro scale. So we see it big, and then it happens over and over and over again all throughout the whole book. So it starts off with a moral test. We're affirmed, we're said, it says, you know, live a good life, live righteously, be righteous. Um, then he moves into a social test, and he says, Act nicely to others, and, and how that moral, morality, that good living, how that looks among the other people in the world. And then he moves into the doctrinal test, and he says, what is teaching, what does the scripture say about this? What do you need to know about this? And how does that moral aspect and that social aspect affect your knowledge aspect, or your, your own personal spiritual love of God? Um, and so you can see that, that cycle happening throughout all of Scripture, um, but especially in, in the book of 1 John. Um, and here we are starting into kind of in the, if we look at the big picture idea, we've moved out of the moral part, live like Jesus, walk in the light, live righteous lives. We're moving into the social part where he talks about what does that look like uh, for us as people in a world full of other people. Okay, so... Um, now that we've kind of laid out that, that outline, um, here's basically the scriptures that we're working through today. I want to just kind of give you an overarching picture of what we're about to talk about so that you can kind of have in your brain uh, where we're headed. First off, we're given a command to love one another. Um, this command is from Christ, and it's from the beginning. Um, then love for one another is defined for us. It's defined negatively first through example of Cain and Abel. Um, and we are compared to Abel. The world is compared to Cain. We're unfirmed that the world's going to hate us because of our righteousness. Um, then we're assured that because of our love, we can rest assured that we have life. Um, and there's a caution to those who do not love that they remain in death. Um, then he goes on to define love, not negatively, but positively, through the story of Christ's sacrifice. Based on that, he illustrates what kind of the practical outworkings are of this love. If we're loving one another, what does it look like? Um, and he, he exhorts us to love with our actions and not with our words. So, all of that kind of setting the stage for where we're headed, let's jump into verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Okay, first, we need to know the parallelism here. So, um, jump back to chapter 1, verse 5, and we'll see a parallel. Okay, chapter 1, verse 5 of First John. There it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So you see that repeated phrase, this is the message. In the first section, the message was, God is light, and in him is no darkness. He is perfect, he is holy, he is righteous. We're to live like that. That's the moral call. 
Now we see him saying, here's the message that you love one another. And that's the social part. We're morally affirmed that, that we can love one another in the first place because we have Christ, because we're walking in the light. And now we're being affirmed that, hey, here's what your love will look like among other people. So, see that parallel there? That's important. Uh, the next piece we kind of have to look at is what the beginning is. He tells us what the message is. The message is that you need to love one another. But when did we first hear this? Where, when is the beginning uh, that we first heard this? Um, I would say, and uh, one of the important things <laughs> that we're going to notice is we're going to be going back to the Gospel of John a whole lot today. So you may want to go ahead and flip there and just kind of have your finger or slip your little ribbon thingy into the Gospel of John because you'll notice a lot of the themes that John talks about in his letter or language that he uses is all coming from the Gospel of John. It's the same writer. Of course, he's going to say a lot of the same stuff. Um, so in the Gospel of John, chapter 13... In verse 31, we can see what this beginning is that John is referring to. And just to kind of set the stage while you're turning there, chapter 13, verse 31, uh, this is the Last Supper. Uh, Jesus has just revealed that one of his apostles will betray him, um, and he tells Judas to go do what you have to do, and Judas goes out. And so it says, when he, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while am I with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another." So when is the beginning? When is this first given to us? Well, some would say, okay, well, let's look at the Ten Commandments. The law of God is based around love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? So from the beginning, from when the law was first here, we see this being taught. Love one another. Don't steal from each other. Don't kill each other. It's basic love, right? And then when we look into the Gospels, into this new covenant, We have Jesus asserting this new promise, this new law that fulfills the old one, which is love one another. This is the new commandment. This is is the fulfillment of that law. And the actions that we do to fulfill the law are loving one another. And the only way we can do it is, of course, through the Holy Spirit, which is the gift that Jesus is is beginning to give here in this Last Supper uh, story. Also look, if you can, to uh, John, Gospel of John, chapter 15. And we're here again. Jesus is, is reasserting what this commandment is. Chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus' commandment is clear. Love each other. Finally, if we jump back to the book of 1 John where we are today, skip down a little bit further in chapter 3. In verse 23, he explains it even more. He says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So the commandment ultimately is, believe in the name of Jesus, trust in that alone, and love each other. 
Pretty simple, right? <laughs> and if you keep these commandments, you know that God's abiding in you and you're abiding in God. And we can know that we do because of the spirit that he has given to us. So there's the message. There's the beginning. Let's look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Okay, I'm going to have you flip in your Bibles a lot today. Um, Cain and Abel's story. We've got to jump back to Genesis chapter 4 uh, and see where this is coming from. You all know this story already, I know. But we, uh, there's some, some important language things that we need to see in the, in the text itself. So uh, Genesis chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Okay, this, is a, this is a heavy story. This is the first instance recorded in Scripture of murder, and probably the first murder. We don't have any reason to believe that something, someone else had murdered someone else before this. These are uh, Adam and Eve's children, so there weren't many other people on the earth this time. Um, so this is heavy. Um, Cain killed his brother. Why? Well, John answers that for us. Why did he kill him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, Scripture doesn't really tell us exactly what those evil deeds were that Cain had done. We know that his offering was deemed unfit, unsuitable, wasn't good enough, um, and and God didn't take it, God didn't like it. Um, But we're not told exactly what his deeds were that made him so evil. Um, What we do see is that he most certainly illustrated his evil deeds when he killed his brother about it. Um, So... Whatever those evil deeds were prior to it, um, he certainly fulfilled his evil deeds um, and proved that the evil one, as John says here, was in him when he killed his brother. Uh, Also, if you consider, you don't have to turn here, but in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the writer of Hebrews, uh, he says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So as far as the writer of Hebrews thinks, faith is the determining factor. Abel had faith and Cain didn't. And that's why Abel's sacrifice was deemed good enough. That's why God accepted Abel's sacrifice. And Cain, like any unrighteous person, any evil person, doesn't like that someone else is better than him, right? doesn't like that there's a standard that he's being held to. He doesn't like that there's a law. Um, and so he responds in hate. And this, is kinda, this is, idea is key for us too. The only thing that separates us from being just like Cain is faith. How else can we keep the law? We can't. That was proven over centuries of law uh, that existed prior to Christ that no one could keep. And that picture was, you can't keep this law 
but I can, says Jesus, and I'm going to keep it, and then I'm going to die for you so that the law isn't what your standard is anymore. Um, but I am. I am the standard now. So faith is what separates us from Cain, just like it's what separated Abel. Another key truth here in this, in this scripture, um, in the Cain and Abel story, uh, is this theme of the wicked person hates righteousness. They can't help it. Uh, When there's wickedness in you, if you're not regenerate, you detest righteousness. You detest that there is a law. You don't want it. You You hate a perfect holy God because that means that you need to be like him. It calls you to better things. And if we're called to better things and we don't want better things, we're going to hate. And this kind of leads perfectly into uh, the next verse here. Verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. (laughs) So why wouldn't the world, this philosophical entity that is in antithesis to the kingdom of God, why wouldn't that thing hate us? If we're truly walking in the light, as we've been called to in this first part of this book, um, if we're living righteous lives exemplified by Christ... A world which hates absolutes, a world which hates moral standards, which hates authority, will necessarily hate those whose actions point to an authority, who point to moral truth, who point to anything that matters. And you can see again that John is echoing the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. In chapter 15, verse 18, just after Jesus exhorts the followers to love one another as he has loved them, he says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus doesn't even say it's a maybe. He says it's a certainty. They hated me, they will hate you. Be ready for it. Don't be surprised by it. If you're living a life that looks like me, an unbelieving world has no choice but to hate you. Now, this verse kind of seems like a little bit of a digression. He's talking about loving one another. He gives us an example of what love doesn't look like. And then suddenly out comes this, the world's going to hate you for it. Well, that... This kind of seems out of place, but really this is important to us because as we're loving, as we're living in love like Christ did, going out into the world and loving people, the system of the world is going to respond with hate. It's not, they're not going to love us back uh, until they've had the Spirit come upon them and change them. They don't have any choice but to respond in hate. That's the natural state of their heart. All right, moving on to the next verse, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Hmm. What does it mean to pass from death into life? Okay, guess where we're going to go? The Gospel of John, chapter 5. Chapter 5 and 24, he says, this is Jesus speaking, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he is passed from death 
to life. So here we see again that passing from death to life is synonymous with escaping eternal condemnation and obtaining eternal life. That's what Jesus calls it. Also notice that in this passage, it moves into a different focus. First off, John starts off exhorting us, love one another. And now he's using that love, and he's presupposing that we have it, as kind of the standard by which our status can be determined, living or dead. Okay? If you love, you're alive. If you don't love, you're dead. Right? Um, the love that we're commanded by Christ to have for one another is a sign of our regeneration. It's a sign of our salvation. It's a sign of our faith. Uh, if we love, we can trust that we are abiding in life, in Christ. Um, and true love can only flow out of that rebirth. We can't love one another if we don't have love in us, right? It's the only way we can gain the ability to love like that. And that's sometimes pretty hard to do. Uh, we're called to a very high standard. Um, and John I've loved seeing throughout this whole study that he speaks in very black and white terms. There's no gray area, and there's not. If you're abiding in death, there won't be love. If you're abiding in life, there will be. It's inevitable. It's an outworking of that truth. And verse 15 just echoes the other side of the same coin. Even verse 14, we know that we have life because we love. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Okay? See that equivocation of hatred and murder? Where does that come from? Remember that one? I'm not going to John this time, but Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say? You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, hatred is a sign of an unregenerate heart. Verse 15 kind of reinforces verse 14 here. If you live a life of hatred, a life without love then you're living a life of murder. And the love of Christ is not in you. There is no regeneration in a man who practices an adulterous or a murderous or a theftful life. The indicator, that is, whether we love or not, points to the condition of our heart. And I kind of, when I was thinking about this, I thought of it like a thermometer. Okay, if you have a thermometer and you put it in a, in a glass of water, it doesn't change the water at all. Okay, on a molecular level, I'm some, some, some scientists will be like, well, actually, if the thermometer... No, okay. The temperature of the water doesn't change when you put the thermometer in it. If my thermometer reads 250 degrees and I put it in water, the water doesn't boil. The thermometer indicates what the state of the water already is. And it's the same way for our love. Our love indicates what our heart already is. So don't, get this, don't let this confuse you. It's not what we need to clarify. Um, this isn't some workspace salvation kind of thing where if you're loving good enough, you get to go to heaven. No. If you're going to heaven, you're going to be able to love good enough. That's the only way you can love is if you're going to heaven anyway. And if you're not going to heaven, you can't love this way. You can't love like Jesus did. You can do nice things for people. You can, there's this common grace that allows us to, to do kind things. 
They're not done in faith. And so really, what are they? They're sin. And that's just keeping on destining us to our destiny um, or them to their destiny. I'm not going there. So let's just, um, finally, if you're of God, you'll love. If you're of the world, you'll hate. It's not the other way around. Does that make sense? Good. All right, verse 16, and this is where it really gets good. Okay, by this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Okay, so he started off, and he told us to love one another, and he says, don't love like this. We've got a negative definition of what love is. Don't be Cain. Don't kill your brother. That's not love. And now he's moving into this passage, and he's telling us this is love. Jesus is love. <laughs> the story of Christ is love. Look at it. Once again, guess what he's echoing? Gospel of John, chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Also, John, chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. <laughs> what an incredible example of true love we have. We don't have to look at, you know, <laughs> I don't know, books or movies or TV shows or our parents for examples of what true love looks like. We have the clearest example that there ever has been in the words of Scripture right before us. And so often we, you know, it's teenagers have this, and I teach teenagers, so I, I see it all the time. Um, what do they want? They want somebody to love them, and they want to love somebody. And most of the time they're talking about this kind of, you know, you know, if you talk about the Greek terms of love, they're talking about the eros love. They want that, you know, passionate love for one another kind of thing. Um, th- that love pours out of where? Out of the picture of Christ and his church. They want friends. We all want friends, right? We want, we want somebody who isn't our family to love us and to love them back. Why do we want that? Because the picture that God gives us of his church is a picture of a family who loves each other. Golly. And, and if you look at the other kind of love, which is this love for God, a perfect love for God, why, how can we do that? Because he loved us first. So, by this you know love, he laid down his life for us. We need to lay down our life for the brothers in the same way. That's the perfect example of true love. Do you live um, in light of that kind of love? I mean, if you just how often do you stop and think about how much God loves you? And we say it all the time, oh yeah, well God loves you, Jesus loves you, he died for you. <laughs> but what, what does that do? Does that affect the way you live your life? Does that affect how you interact with people? It should. should really affect the way we interact with people. That's a perfect example of what true love looks like. And we're called to love truly? Do it. <laughs> and we say, well, but <laughs> I don't have to go die on a cross. That's what Jesus did. He laid down his life for his friends. How often are we called to literally lay down our lives for those we love? Well, it's not very often. That's true. You may not be called to that. I hope that you're not called to that kind of example of love. And so in this next verse, verse 17, John moves in and says, what does this love look like for you? 
You may not be having to lay down your life physically. You may not be having to die to show this love. So how do you show this love? How do you live this love out? So in verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So how is this love manifest? In our works. In the things that we do. You see this theme all throughout Scripture. Our faith inevitably produces good works. That's the result of it. I'm going to have to read another long passage of Scripture to you, so if you'll turn with me to James 2. This is the locus classicus on this whole topic of works and faith and um, that whole idea. So let's, let's get there. James chapter 2, and I'm starting in verse 14. This is a big chunk, so bear with me as we read through it. Get a drink first. What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So, although faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, Well, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So we see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now this is a tough passage. Uh, This has been a source of a whole lot of disagreement um, and angry fist raised um, throughout the history of the church. Uh, Really, the whole idea of justification by faith was the core idea of the Reformation. It's what gives us, that's why we're not all Catholics today. So we look at this and we say, wait a second, I'm pretty sure that James is saying right here that we're justified by both works and faith. He says it really clearly. So what do we do with that? We know that justification is by faith alone, right? The rest of Scripture says it very clearly. I mean, good grief, read Romans. There's no shadow of a doubt that works aren't what justify us if you look at Romans. And so when we come to a difficult passage in Scripture, one of the things we always have to do is say, well, what does the rest of Scripture say about this idea? Interpret Scripture with Scripture. That's the best thing we can do. Don't uh, don't take this and say, oh, well, (laughs) James says works too, so... I'm going to throw away the rest of the Bible and works are how I get to heaven. No, he doesn't say that at all. James is just echoing the same thing that John said. A faith which does not produce works isn't true faith. Works are the thermometer. Works are the indication. They're the indicator of true faith. If we have faith, we'll have works. Good actions are indication that faith is present. Without works, faith is dead. 
In other words, it's non-existent. And this is okay, another quick example. Um, I'm not a gardener, so forgive me if I make horrible mistakes in this analogy. Say that you buy some tomato seeds, and you want to grow some tomatoes. And so you plant the tomato seeds in, in the dirt, and you water it, and you take good care of it, and it sprouts up, la, 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 and it's growing, and it never produces anything. It just sits there as a stalk. Sound familiar, Catherine? Yeah. Um, so it's just these beautiful, tall stalks, but there's never any fruit. And so you go, wait a second. I'm not really sure if this is actually a tomato plant. It's not making any tomatoes. How in the world could I possibly know that this is really a tomato plant if it's not making tomatoes? Okay, well, second part. Uh, say that you buy some seeds and you plant them in the dirt, and they're tomato seeds, and up pops this stalk, and it's beautiful. And then one day you walk outside, and there's a pepper growing on it. And you say, wait a second. That's not a tomato plant. It's not producing the right kind of fruit. It's not making tomatoes, so it's not a tomato plant. The fruit isn't changing the plant. It isn't determining it. It tells you what was already there. It tells you what the plant was, what the seeds were that you planted. They were pepper, not tomato. And then, if you plant some seeds and they grow, and they produce these beautiful, juicy red tomatoes, you say, oh, okay, this one is actually a tomato plant. I can tell because it produced the right kind of fruit. And this is how it works for us, too. Our lives, our acts, our good works... Um, our love for one another is the tomato. It, it's, it's what points to the fact that the plant is what it says it is. The first plant might have been a tomato plant, but we never knew because it never produced any fruit. And John himself later affirms this in, uh, in the same letter. In uh, chapter 4 he says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Whoever is a tomato plant must produce tomatoes. (laughs) Otherwise, what good is it? It's not any good. It's worthless to us. Loving one another is a natural outworking of truly loving God. It's a necessary result of it. All right, finally, verse 18. How do we love? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And this final, this verse is an affirmation that the love produced by our faith will be active love. It's going to do something. It's not just talk. It's not just words. It's not just, and I'm sure you're very familiar with, you know, in marriage counseling, okay, Um, I tell her I love her like 40 times a day. Okay, but do you show it? What kind of marriage is that where you just say it 100 times a day? Call her up. I love you. Send a text. I love you. That's great. And I'm sure that they love to hear that. Um, But there has to be some sort of action behind it or we don't believe it, do we? Same with our faith. There has to be some sort of action behind our faith or no one's going to believe it. How do we believe it if it's not producing action? If our love for one another is really genuine, it's going to do something. And this kind of brings up the question, who do we love? In this passage, John is specifically talking about love for the brothers. And the brothers are those within our, our covenant community, our church, um, the brothers, other believers. Um, but I would venture to say that John would not be very happy if we said that We aren't supposed to love everybody else. Um, Clearly, we're told, love your neighbor. 
as yourself. And that's not just talking about the brothers. That's talking about everybody. The most important thing is that we're loving like Christ loved. What was the love of Christ like? It was unconditional, and it was pervasive. Went everywhere. He he didn't discriminate. Our love should likewise cover the world with actions that point to Christ. That's what we're called to do. The Great Commission. Go, preaching, teaching, working, helping people, spreading the gospel. So when, you go, when we go and do missions work, preaching the gospel to the lost is not all that we're called to. That's a hugely important thing. That's absolutely essential to true mission work. But if it's without active love, it doesn't do anything good. It, it, the profit of it is severely hindered. How will they receive if they don't know that we love them? If we're not imaging the love of Christ, why would they want it? Well, you come here and you, and you are dressed so nicely and then you show me this thing about this Jesus guy who loves me and then you leave. Is that what Jesus' love looks like? Because I don't want that. So, recap. We're commanded to love one another. Don't do it like Cain did. <laughs> That's not what love looks like. And just like Abel was hated for his faith and for his good works and for his righteousness, so we will be hated by an unbelieving world. It's inevitable. Be like Jesus. His love is perfect. That's a good example of what love looks like. Do that. And that means living sacrificially and loving sacrificially and giving of yourself um, to the body in a way that sometimes won't feel good. And how can we love this way? How are we enabled to love? through the Holy Spirit, through our rebirth in Christ. If we love this way, our actions indicate that we have life. If we don't love, our actions indicate that we have spiritual death, that we're not truly in Christ. And then what does this love look like on the ground in the world? It's active. It helps people. It loves people, and it does things for one another. That's what true love is. It's not, good morning, how are you? Uh, I love you, (laughs) and then leaving. Um, it's investing, it's sacrificing. Um, If we look at the example of Jesus, it's very clear. He didn't just say it, he showed it very clearly. So, you're called to love. Are you loving one another like Jesus loves you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the awesome power that it has to convict our hearts to encourage us in uh, righteous living and to point us um, to our salvation. We pray, Father, this morning that, um, that these words that we've discussed, um, that these scriptures that we've thought about um, will impact us and that we won't just um, continue living lives that love in word, and, um, but that love in deed, in action, and truth And we know that Jesus is the truth. And so we pray that our love will reflect your glory. That our love will shine into a world that is dark. And call them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.